The rest of us will be looking at the letter of 1 Peter this morning. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn in it to 1 Peter chapter 1. Our passage is verses 13 to 21. As we continue to learn from Peter's encouragement and his instruction in this book, which is for us. So we're going to jump right into reading the passage, and then we're going to pray for God's help to understand it. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. We ask, Lord, that this morning that would be the effect of dwelling on these words that you inspired Peter to write, that our faith and our hope would be in you. Oh, Lord, that's a solid place to put our faith. That's concrete. That's immovable. That's ground we can stand on. And so would you do it? Would you give us that that? that gift this morning, Lord, of having heard from you and, and walk out of here on solid ground, having our faith and our hope in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, what counsel would you give to a person who's going through trials, through various kinds of suffering? Suppose they come to you and they, and they tell you things like, I lost my job because the company is downsizing. Or, I'm not doing well in school. <laughs> or, I have no friends. Or, my family is offended by my faith in Christ and there's a rift in our relationship. So, they tell you about their trials, they come to you for counsel, and they ask the question, so, what do I do? What would you tell them? Well, here's what the Apostle Peter would say. Hope in God and be holy like God. Hope in God and be holy like God. Because that's what Peter does say 
in our passage this morning. He wrote this letter to believers in Jesus who were going through various trials, he said. Some of those were trials that are common to everybody, but many of them were trials specific for their faith in Christ. They're facing opposition for that. And his counsel to them in all these trials is to hope in God and be holy like God. Verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope. Hope in God. Verse 15, He who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Be holy like God is holy. That's what Peter says. Indeed, that's what God says to the believer who is going through various trials. And I don't think that he would say something different to the non-believer. He would say to all of us that your answer in your trials is two things, hope in God and be holy like God. It's not very much different from what Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry where he said, repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance is about pursuing holiness and believing in the gospel is about hoping in God. That's the way forward when you are going through various trials. That's what you do. We're going to spend our time this morning unpacking those two commands and see how they work out in our lives. But before we do that, let's begin with an observation uh, to put these commands in context. Otherwise, we'll come at them with the wrong mindset. So here's the observation, which is that God's commands come in the context of God's grace. God's commands come in the context of God's grace. You see that word, therefore, at the beginning of verse 13? Someone once said about interpreting the Bible that whenever you see a therefore, you ask what it's there for. <laughs> Let's ask that question. It's a transition word. It means based on everything I've just said to this point, do such and such. And here it means based on everything that I've just told you in verses 1 to 12, hope in God and be holy like God. It makes sense to be hopeful and to be holy based on what I've just said. That's the right application of what I've been talking about. So what's Peter been talking about in verses 1 to 12? Let's review that briefly. He said things like this to believers in Jesus. He said, do you know that God has caused you to be born again? <laughs> Do you know that he's put his Holy Spirit within you to give you new life? Do you know that you have an inheritance reserved in heaven for you? <laughs> that you have an everlasting share in the glorious kingdom of God that cannot be taken away from you? Do you know that God is guarding you for that inheritance, that he's keeping you for it so that you can't even lose it? Do you realize that praise and glory and honor are awaiting you when you come into your eternal inheritance? Do you realize that even angels long to look into the salvation that God has given to you? 
You think about that. Sinless beings who dwell continually in the presence of God would love to know what it's like to be in your shoes. (laughs) That's how great your salvation is. That's why Peter, that's what he's been talking about. And therefore, since those things are true for you, hope in God and be holy like God. Now, why does it matter that we notice that order of things that first comes all the encouragement and then comes these commands, which we're about to hear? It's because in a relationship with God, being comes before doing. Being comes before doing. You're the objects of God's great mercy, therefore live in a certain way. Not live in a certain way so you can become the object of God's mercy. No, God has acted on you first. He's, he's been gracious. He's, it was unforced. He didn't have to do this, but he showers his divine love on you by sending his son Jesus into the world to die for your sins, and that now empowers and motivates you to do certain things. In relationship with God, encouragements come before requirements. Promises come before practices. Otherwise, the commands would be burdensome if they're all by themselves, if they weren't in the context of grace. You'd think, be holy as God is holy? Oh boy, that, that sounds hard. <laughs> that sounds like a high standard. I don't think I can live up to that. And then there would be despair. Or there might be some who don't understand how high that bar really is. And they can think, I can meet that standard. Be holy as God is holy? Yeah, I'm doing that. What's your problem? Sort of a self-righteousness, puffing ourselves up. Commandments by themselves will either crush us in despair because we know we don't meet the standard, or they will puff us up with pride when we think that we are meeting the standard. But God's way is different than that. He gives commands in the context of his grace. First, he makes us his beloved children, and then he says, now here's what I want you to do with that. Here's what I empower you to do. That keeps us from despair, and it keeps us from self-righteous pride. God's commands come in the context of God's grace. That's a principle that applies to a lot of things. Parenting comes to my mind immediately. (laughs) Parents, it's easy for us to give a lot of commands to our kids, and we do have a responsibility to do that. We're to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That includes telling them to do this or that. It includes consequences. It includes boundaries. We correct, but... Does that come in the context of grace? Do your kids know that you love them, not just when they do right, but when they do wrong? Or do they think that they must continually do the right things in order to keep your love? Do your commands come in the context of God's grace? I have to say, I'm convicted by that question myself. It could be you're convicted by that if you're a parent. And I think that it would be good for us to review verses 1 through 12. And remember, God's grace came to us not by our doing, but only by sheer mercy. 
that was apart from our performance, let's extend that attitude towards our kids or towards one another in our relationships. The context has to be grace, otherwise the commands have no power except to crush us. So that's the first observation. Let's look at the main things Peter tells us to do in the passage. First one is hope in God. Verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The primary verb in that sentence is set your hope. Qualified by these ongoing actions of preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, but setting your hope on the grace of God is the main thing here. Now, I find it interesting that the first command Peter gives to us when we go through trials isn't some external action that we're supposed to do, but it's an internal discipline of the heart. To set your hope on something is to place your confidence in that thing. It's what you're counting on to happen. The prospect of that certain thing in your future is what gets you up in the morning. It's what keeps you going. What keeps some people going every day is the hope that I'm going to enjoy my work today and then I'm going to be good at it. Um, some people, their hope is that I'm going to get up and I'm going to, I'm going to earn a paycheck today. Um, what keeps some people going is, well, today I'm going to spend time with my sweetheart. Uh, or I'm going to make a difference in the world today somehow. The fact is we all set our hope on something because a person can't live without hope. We need a reason to get up in the morning. And whatever it is that we set our hope on is going to determine how we live. It will. If your hope is in fitness, then your life will revolve around the gym. Working out becomes the non-negotiable of your life. If your hope's in building a, a good retirement fund, then watching the stock market and your investments becomes critically important. If your hope is in getting the right person elected, then your, your life revolves around a political campaign. Not that any of those pursuits are wrong in them themselves, but when you set your hope in them, then they will direct your life. They will determine what you actually do every day. And that's why Peter, who has many things that he's going to tell us to do throughout this letter, he starts with, where is your hope set? What is it that you think, that's what I have to have? Because whatever that thing is, it's going to determine what your life is like. So he has to start there. Where's your hope? And he says the only place that it should be, the place it should fully be, is in the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, make this wonderful salvation of verses 1 through 12 be the reality that makes you get up and face every day with confidence. If you've got other things to look forward to, that's great, but this is the real deal right here. This is what gives life meaning and purpose and a note of optimism. Everything that God is bringing to you in Jesus Christ. The, the verse actually carries something of a, a sense of a, what is being carried. This will be brought to you. It's being carried. It's being delivered to you. 
if I could use an illustration from our Christmas season here, it's like the, the grace that's coming to you in Jesus Christ is on the UPS truck right now. <laughs> it's being delivered. It's being brought to you. You already have the down payment of it in the Holy Spirit who is in you. But the fullness of that salvation, that grace of God is coming. It's on its way. The delivery is there. That's what Peter wants us to be thinking about. Put your hope on that. That's coming. You're already tasting of it. You've got this inheritance in heaven. Praise and honor and glory. You see, the Lord doesn't want your hope to rise and fall on the things of this world that you can't count on. Like your health, like how much money you have, or who's in the White House or who's in the Supreme Court. He doesn't want your hope to rise and fall on these things. He wants you to set your hope fully on something that does not rise or fall, something that does not change. That is the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, to you. That cannot change. That will not change. That's a place, that's solid ground for us to have a reason to get up every day and know that it's true, that my future is secure, that my Savior is with me, that it is well with me. That's where he wants our hope to be. And the great thing is, you can have that hope no matter what your circumstances are. Every single one of us has a reason to get up in the morning and move forward with optimism. All it takes is where we set our hope, and if we set it on the grace that God has given to us, then we can say, all right, my life means something. My life is significant. I'm going in a good direction. <laughs> what, what do you have for me today, Lord? Living God? <laughs> I have a living hope. See, but it all depends on where, what are we setting our minds on? Where is it really? Where's that hope at? If your hope's not there in Christ and in God, then he commands you to put it there. Take this as God's command to you for your good. Put your trust in Christ who died for your sins and is bringing you to your... All right. One more thing to say about hope before we move on to the second command, which is that this hope is not a hope that makes us apathetic about following God. As in, I know I'm going to heaven, so I might as well kick back and binge watch Netflix until Jesus comes. Right? No, this is a hope that makes us want to do things for God so that we can experience his presence in our lives more fully right now. And that's why Peter qualifies setting your hope on grace with preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. The picture there is of somebody who's alert, someone who's ready to go at a moment's notice. Uh, preparing your minds for action is literally gird up the loins of your mind. So, that has a, in, its, in its picture there a person with a long robe and they want to run. Well, they have to gather up the robe around their, their waist. They have to gird up their loins so that they can run. It's a picture of being ready, of being responsive, ready to go at the moment's notice. 
He's saying you want to be like that. That's what, that's what setting your hope is supposed to be like. You're, you're ready. It's spiritual readiness. You want to be in the game. And uh, he uses another illustration there, sober-minded, which means something similar. A sober person doesn't want his, his mind to be dulled by intoxicating influences. He, he wants to keep himself sharp. He doesn't want to be dulled to what's going on around him. So the pic- picture that Peter's painting for us here is those who set their hopes fully on the grace of God are going to be looking for opportunities to experience that grace. They're going to be preparing themselves uh, to be about God's will. You're going to be in the scriptures so that you can learn about God and know what he says. You're going to be in prayer. You're going to want to be with other believers. You're going to hear about ministry opportunities, and you're going to ask, does God want me to do that? It's about spiritual readiness, spiritual alertness. That is what the, this, hope, this hope produces in us, a, a readiness for action. But nothing kills spiritual readiness and availability to answer God's call in your life more than sin does. Which is why Peter's second command is be holy like God is holy. You can't be setting your hope fully on the grace of of God's salvation while you were at the same time setting your hope on something else. And to set your hope on something else besides God is what it means to sin. It's you look to something else besides the Lord for your sense of worth, for your happiness, for your reason for living. That's the essence of what sin is. Abandoning God for something else. And it won't work. So let's look at this second command. Be holy like God. Comes from verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What does that mean then, to be holy? Um, The essence of it is the idea of being separate from all that is sinful, all that is wrong. Vessels in God's temple were consecrated for use in worship, and they were to be considered holy. You weren't supposed to use them for common things. They were dedicated to God. So there's this idea of being set apart to God and from all that is sinful, and that's, of course, what God is. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God is of purer eyes than to see evil, and he cannot look at wrong. God has absolutely nothing to do with sin. It is completely foreign to who he is. Sin finds no place with God. God is holy. And Peter says to the believers scattered about that they are to be holy as God is holy. Now, in one sense... Believers in Christ are already counted holy because God has given to you through faith the holiness of Jesus, the perfect record of Jesus, the obedient record of Jesus. 
It belongs to you. God counts it as belonging to you and can say to you, I see you as blameless. I see you as holy. That's our position before God through faith. We've already been brought into the holiness of Christ. And yet, Peter here says that we are to be holy. There's something to be done. Be holy as God is holy. And what he's thinking about there is our actual behavior in the world. Be holy in all your conduct, he says. Root out sin from your life. The goal is not to be holier than thou, sort of self-righteous way of thinking, but it is to be holier than you once were. Be obedient, children, he says, who are no longer conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. There was a time when you didn't know any better. When you were non-believers, you gave yourself to all kinds of passions. Your hope was all over the place, everywhere except God. God wasn't a part of your life, and so you were going after whatever made you feel good, whatever made you feel loved, whatever made you feel important. But these were feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, he says in verse 18. But now, he says, you've been set free from that. God has called you to a different life. He says, be holy for I am holy. Now you can be. Now sin has lost all of its power over you. Now you can obey God's good and perfect will. That is the kind of life that you live when your hope is in the right place. That's not a futile life. That's what it looks like to be rescued from futility. This is the useful life. This is the good life. This is the purposeful, significant, meaningful life to walk in obedience to God in holiness. This is where we really live. It's a good command to be holy as God is holy. And now you can because he's freed you from sin, from its power. So notice this, friends. Setting your hope in God does not lead to indifference about your sin. It leads to pursuit of holiness. It makes us want to be like Christ, the Holy One. And I say that because it's not hard to find among Christians a sort of casual attitude towards sin. The thought goes something like this. I'm accepted by God through faith. I'm going to heaven. Jesus said it is finished. So I don't need to change my habits. Whether I read the Bible or not doesn't matter. Whether I participate in fellowship in the church isn't of critical importance. It's not a big deal whether I give money because I'm accepted as I am. But friends, we didn't learn that attitude from the Lord. We learned that from our culture. Because Peter says, God says, be holy as I am holy. God's not only interested in your future in heaven. He's interested in your present transformation into the likeness of Christ. He wants the very best for you, and the very very best for you and for me is to put away sin from our lives. Adam and Eve's life was not improved by adding sin to it. And neither is yours, neither is mine. It's true, your sins are forgiven in Christ. But to quote Paul from Romans 6 two, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Why would you want to continue in futile ways? 
Why would you want to continue in those things that created the problem between you and God in the first place? That's his question. So we preach grace as we should. We preach God's acceptance apart from our works as we should. We preach that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven in Christ. But we don't preach that sin in your life is okay. Because it's not. We don't preach that God doesn't care what you do. He does care. Jesus said, repent and believe. He didn't just say believe. Repent and believe. Repent, turn away from, being, be increasingly uncomfortable with your sin. And be more and more in line with God's will for your life. If your hope is set fully on God, you will want more of God in your life. And that means you will want less sin because sin always negatively affects our relationship with God. You will be different from the world. You won't go along with the crowd. You'll be guided by a better hope than the world has when your hope is in God. You'll bring other believers into your life, and you'll say, could you help me with this? Would you pray for me because I'm having this struggle going on right now? Or we're going to ask each other, can you point me to some verses that would really help me know what to do right now because I, I want to do the Lord's will, but I don't know what it is. We're going to ask each other. We're, we're, we're looking for how can I align myself with the hope that is there? <laughs> help me to see that hope again and help me to align my life with it. Because I want more of God. Now, it would be enough to pursue holiness just because God commands it. But the Lord is gracious, and he knows that we need other motivations. He, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. And so he gives us motivations as to why we ought to pursue holiness. And he gives those to us in, in verses 17 to 21. Let me just describe those, put them in two categories. The first one may surprise you, <clears throat> or it may confuse you. It's in verse 17. The motivation is to pursue holiness out of fear. <laughs> pursue holiness out of fear. Listen to what Peter says. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with fear. Now, what does he mean by that? <laughs> the standard answer is that it means reverent fear of God. And that's true. That is what it means. But that's not entirely useful because what does it mean to fear God? <laughs> what is that reverent fear all about? I think we can be more specific because of the context in the context, the fear here is of displeasing a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. The best way I know to try and capture that kind of fear is to think about my childhood days. I have a father who is like the one in Hebrews 12.10, who disciplined me as seemed best to him. Sometimes the discipline was excessive, sometimes it was with anger, but he was rightfully trying to teach me that it isn't okay to be lazy or disrespectful or mean to my sister. 
And sometimes the only way that he could teach me that was to apply some pain, which usually meant his belt on my backside. And I came to fear displeasing my father because I knew that I would very likely experience his belt as a result. Now, that isn't the perfect picture of the fear of God. There's some sin involved in that. But it's not entirely far off. Peter is saying you should fear the potential consequences of sinning against your Father in heaven because he is an impartial judge. He goes by the book, we might say. Yes, he will forgive all your sins by, because of your faith in Jesus, but that does not mean he will withhold the consequences of your sins when you need to experience those consequences in order to be holy. He will discipline those whom he loves. We should have a healthy fear of that discipline. This is why we have verses like Colossians 3.25 in the Bible. Paul said to the church in Corinth, Colossae, that he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. It is right to be motivated to holiness in part because of the consequences that can follow from our unholiness. It's right to have a healthy fear of what God the impartial judge may do in order to make us holy. To use a different example. A husband should be faithful to his wife because he loves her and he's committed to her. That should be enough motivation. But it would not be wrong for him to also be motivated by the thought of the consequences of being unfaithful. If a guy is tempted by his pretty secretary, in that moment he would be well served by seeing what that's going to cost him if he goes for it. If he could have a vision of his kids crying as their mother drives away with them after the divorce. If he could see the pain of deciding who gets what as the family assets are divided up. If he could remember Proverbs 7.23 that it will cost him his life. If he conducted himself with fear of displeasing his heavenly father, it would serve him very well indeed in that moment of temptation. There is a place for a healthy fear of God's fatherly discipline when we are tempted to sin. It isn't the primary motivation to holiness, but it is a motivation. We should not take lightly how God really feels about our sin. In fact, I think that's reflected in verses 18 and 19. Peter continues his thought. He says, conduct yourselves with fear, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. It should sober us to realize that the only way you can be ransomed from your sins is through a bloody execution of God's own Son, His sinless one, His beloved on the cross. It took that to deal with your sin and my sin. Our sin is so disgusting, so deserving of the highest penalty, it takes God Himself to pay the punishment. 
If you could just, if you want to see what God thinks about our sin, look at the cross. God hates our sin. That's why we can't become friends with it. It's right to have a holy fear of what sin deserves and the consequences that it brings into our lives from God, the impartial judge. Now, that's not the primary motivation for holiness. There is a more powerful motivation than that and a more prominent one in the text, and that is to pursue holiness out of awe, out of awe at the Lord's mercies to us. We could say it other ways. We could say amazement. We could say gratefulness, but I'm using the word awe because it's this combination of admiration and wonder at what God has done through Jesus Christ. That's the most powerful motivation for holiness. That also comes from verses 18 and 19. Conduct yourselves with fear, knowing that you were ransomed. Put the emphasis on the ransom there. You were ransomed from futile ways that were going on for generations. You inherited them from your fathers. They were cultural. They were all over the place, but you were ransomed from that, not with little things like silver and gold, but with the blood of Jesus himself. Now, even though it's sobering to consider the price Jesus had to pay for our sin, it's also odd, awe-inspiring to know that he actually did it. <laughs> it's amazing love that Jesus would willingly, and even for the joy set before him, endure the cross, that he would take the blame, that he would take the punishment for our sins. It's amazing that God would go to such lengths to enter our world and to endure hatred and scoffing and being spit upon and whipped and then crucified just to pay the ransom for your soul to give you heaven, to give you himself, to give you a hope and a future. We used to walk in the passions of our former ignorance. We walked in futile ways. We were dead on the road leading to destruction and happy to be on it. But God said, no, I won't let you do it. I'm going to cause you to be born again. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to give you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. I'm going to be your father, and I'm going to bring you into my home. <laughs> when you know God like that, when you're overcome by the wonder of the sacrifice of Jesus for you, you will want more of God and less of sin. It makes you want to be holy as God is holy. It makes that delightful, and we will Always go after what's delightful. That's the most powerful motivator of all. And God says, it's delightful. Jesus is delightful. You want to know him? Be holy. You'll know him better than if you're in your sin. Amazement, gratefulness, awe, wonder. That's, that's our powerful motivation for holiness. Peter was amazed when he mentions the ransom payment that Jesus made, he can't help himself, but he goes on and on about how great Jesus is in verses 19 to 21. He's the lamb without spot or blemish. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, what was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. It would be so worth it to spend a lot of time on that sentence alone. Because <laughs> it means that before the world was made, God already had a plan to send Jesus into the world to be made manifest at a specific time in history in order to make a ransom payment for you. He had that all planned out before he created the universe. Before he created the universe, you were on his mind. <laughs> you specifically, you believer in Christ, he already knew, I'm going to save you. I'm going to have a ransom payment. I foreknow Jesus as the Savior who's going to pay that. That's how long he's been thinking about you. Peter can't end this without saying again that Jesus was raised from the dead and given glory so that your faith and hope are in God because that's Peter's ministry to be an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's got to stick that in there. <laughs> There's glory out there. Jesus has glory. And you're going to join him in that glory. Put your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ who is risen and who is coming again. Let me just close with this. Given the various trials that grieve us in the world, what should we do? What do we set out to do on any given day? Two things. Hope in God. Be holy like God. Or to say it another way, repent and believe in the gospel. It really is good enough news to give us a reason to get up every morning. Let's pray. Lord, bring these truths closer to our hearts today. Uh, give us fresh eyes to see, hearts to receive. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you, Lord, that you pursued us before we had any interest in you at all. You changed us. You gave us such a great future and a hope. You've relieved us from the burden of having to do everything right because Jesus did for us. You want us to walk in, in the freedom of knowing that we have a Father who loves us. Yes, you sometimes discipline us. Yes, you, you, you let us experience consequences but only out of love, never out of wrath. Your heart is always 100% loving to us as your believers. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't see you that way, who doesn't know you, whose heart has been hoping in something else, would you make that change now? Lord, would you, would you invade them with a picture of Christ dying there for, for him or for her, rescuing them, giving them a reason to live, would you do that? Would you pour out your spirit upon them right now? Thank you for giving us something to sing about. In Jesus' name, amen.